everybody, get ready for Foodie and the Beast with David Nikki Nellis. A foodie born and bred, my wife Nikki loves chatting up chefs, dining out, and insider industry buzz. And my husband David thinks a great meal is nothing but a good burger, a frosty brew, and a check for under $20. Because he is cheap. Well, maybe so, but foodie married beast anyway. And together we've got the food and wine variety show that has everyone talking. It's Foodie and the Beast, and we are on now. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Foodie and the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis on what promises to be a snowy, icy, rainy day here in our nation's capital. We but got you, a great show. You love snowy, icy I, days. I don't like the icy. I like the snowy. Okay. Well, Give anyway. me snowy. Keep the icy. Uh, but we have a great show, and I want to get into that. Do you mind? Uh, we can get into our great show, but I do want to alert everybody that as of Saturday, uh, if you want to go into a restaurant in the D.C. metro area, you need to present your vaccination card. So you have been warned, you know, mask up, have your vax information with you at all points in time, and this way you can uh, enjoy all the deliciousness happening in the city. One quick reminder, on Monday, it's the beginning of restaurant week. Lots of restaurants are doing brunch, lunch, dinner to go Cocktail pairings, wine pairings, so many ways to participate. And given what's going on right uh, right now out there, restaurants are in desperate need of you helping. Of your patronage. Mm-hmm. All right. So on the show today, of course, we've got Deb Moser from Central Farm Markets. Mm-hmm. Considering the weather, I guess we'll be talking about frozen vegetables. But I don't know. Hey, but a bing. Okay, go ahead. Um, and joining us for the uh, cocktail segment, it's really not cocktails, wines today, is Nick Schulman, who is the very urbane and erudite wine director at RPM Italian. Um, we just had dinner there. We had a great dinner we there. Did. He served us great wines, and now he's in here looking very good, even though it's radio. Mm-hmm. I have a T-shirt on. He's all gussied okay, up. Let's go. Jim Snedeker is a CEO of Stock Manufacturing. Uh, they're in the workwear business, but not the way it sounds, because they create very high-end, uh, premium, uh, hospitality-branded uh, clothing lines for restaurants. Uh, I guess uh, I wrote my note here said, think Gucci for restaurants. Maybe that's true. Maybe not. He's smiling. Um, and he also is going to talk to us about the hospitality side of cannabis, one of my favorite subjects. So we're going to be hearing about that. Uh, Scott Harris is, I, I think Scott might have been on our, one of our first shows when they started um, uh, Catoctin Creek Distillery, but uh, he left a job as a chemical engineer. His wife was Becky was a chemical engineer, and they started this award-winning distillery in Loudoun County, and I think it was the first one since Prohibition. He's on now to talk about what's going on with him and a whole new line of um, educational cocktail classes called The Art of the Cocktail. Mm-hmm. And she would hate me if I said it. There's something fishy about our last guest, Fiona Lewis. She's DC's first. It's a cheap shot, and I'm sure she's heard it before. But a bing, but a boom. Okay. Well, I'm scaling up. Okay. But I'm fine. I got get through these. But maybe she'll give me a fin, and I won't do it. Stop. All right. Anyway, she's DC's first female fish uh, monger. She's got three businesses at Union Market, um, and she's a, really a nationally recognized expert on sustainable seafood and conservation. So we're going to be talking to her about a lot of different subjects. Um, uh, related to all that, but first. But first, let's get into Deb Moser, Central Farm Markets, a sponsor of our show, which we are always grateful for. Deb, it is... It's not about the money, Deb. It's about the love. It is about the love. That's and, true. And, oh, that love. hey, we've always been big supporters of farmers markets, especially Central Farm Markets, because it's one that we go to all the time. Deb, uh, it's cold out, man. How can we help the farmers? Because Just because it's cold and it's COVID doesn't mean they're not showing up. That's right. Everybody is in place and ready to go. Uh, just because it's cold, they do, they do show up. But there are some things that they do that uh, help keep those fresh vegetables nice and not frozen. <laughs> so you might see what looks like maybe less on the table. There's more in the truck. They're keeping them warm. 
uh, lettuces and other delicate vegetables like that can freeze very quickly. Mm. So we keep them in the back of the truck. Suggestions for shopping in the cold, come bundled up, come in, shop, go home. Um, you know, get what you need and go home. It's probably not a good idea to bring your pet out on a day like this. And mm -hmm. uh, so just, but there are lots of prepared foods, lots of hot foods to go. So you can And you got booze and you've got beer. You got a lot. You got spirits, you got beer, you got lots of good we stuff. We have everything. Stock up. It, it'll, everything keeps you warm from spirits to soup. So. Right. Well, and I love that. And it, what's great about your market is, is because you have prepared foods, there are people who are serving there so you could have breakfast or lunch or brunch that's correct while you're that's there correct. Um, a hot cup of coffee or tea or who's you your know. coffee producer right now uh zeke's coffee zeke's coffee and they brew yeah. it right there right they they bring it in brewed yeah okay. it's in big carats but they, they are roasting and brewing locally yeah. so you can pour it on your hands nice <laughs> uh, usually a hot nice cup of coffee if you bring your own container they'll fill it up for you so, so if you nice. bring your yeti cup it'll keep it nice and hot hey right. they're not uh, a sponsor of the show we can't talk about yeti that's right oh, yeah. Sorry. okay so okay so no matter what with the weather you're open you're tomorrow open. on sunday you're open are, on sunday we are open we are open the storm's coming in tonight Sunday night. Mm -hmm. yeah. So don't worry about it. We'll be there. Okay, great. Deb, tell everybody where they can find all the information they need about Central Farm Markets. Uh, centralfarmmarkets.com and check it for weather closings if we have to close mm -hmm. and other and advisories. items there. Excellent. Right. And yeah. I do want to remind everyone, thanks so much, Deb, that uh, you can go to the Central Farm Markets website. And if you don't want to schmy around the market and pick and touch and ooh and ah, you can order in advance. So uh, during cold weather, That's I correct. highly, highly advise it. Okay, All let's right. cook wine. Let, let's talk to Nick Schulman, who's the wine director at RPM. Now, the, the, the food at RPM... We say it's Vero Cucina Italiano, which means it's the real deal, and we had an amazing meal, and the wine list matches. So, uh, first of all, because you can tell I'm a little older than you, what's your? I mean, you seem very young to be this accomplished. What's your background? Sure. Uh, first and foremost, thank you so much for oh having me Oh, my God, and today. he has a good radio voice. <laughs> um, Are you the boss with the hot sauce? <laughs> yes, yes, that's me. Uh, so I've, I've been in restaurants for, for many years now, starting early 2000s. Um, worked in hotels, uh, Ritz-Carlton down in Florida. Grew passionate about wine at a pretty uh, young age, but it wasn't till about eight years ago I had a bottle of Bordeaux. It was a bottle of Chateau Mouton Rothschild 1995, and it just completely changed my whole world. I mean, that is a life-changing it was wow. a life-changing wine, and uh, ever since then, I caught the the, the wine bug, so to speak, and uh, have been studying with the quartermaster sommeliers. Uh, mm -hmm. Traveled throughout Europe, um, extensively throughout Italy, and life uh, sucks, doesn't it? It's, it's terrible. <laughs> no, but I mean, if you're if you can make your passion your profession, you're a very fortunate human being, right? Thank you so much. Yes. That was the goal. Yeah, well, you did it. I'm, okay, only, so I'm only laughing because I wish you'd said that to me 40 years ago. But. Okay. I wasn't even born yet. Yes, so you how were. Would I 40 agree? years ago. You liar. Okay. okay. So let's talk about RPM a little bit. Um, we're big fans, um, but can you tell us a little bit about the concept? We've had chef in studio before. We've had your corporate chef in studio, but just for people who haven't had an opportunity to be in. Sure, absolutely. So uh, we are um, uh, in Mount Vernon Triangle area. We are just beyond our fifth year in business, and it's a modern Milan-inspired cuisine. Uh, it's high-volume, fast-paced with a very dynamic wine list. Uh, we are at about 65 pages now of wines, mm -hmm. largely Italian, uh, with some domestic and champagne, uh, grower champagne as well. But it's all about value on the list. We have bottles of Barolo going back to 1937, wow. but also bottles from the 
golden years of the 1960s where you can enjoy a 1964 Barola Reserva for under $200. So. Well, I'll tell you what you also have, and not everybody has it. I mean, we fell in love with the you know Sicilian okay. wines. We're going to get into that I know, later I know, in the but, show. But from Mount Edna, ahead. and you've got a you great beautiful. one. Yeah. We've got one today, actually. Got- Excellent. Um, so you did pour us a first wine. What did you pour us today? Yeah, so this is a uh, this is a white wine. I'm really, really excited about this particular one. So uh, Italy is divided up into 20 regions. You know, you have Sicily, Tuscany, Lazio. Uh, this comes from the smallest, least populated region called Val d'Iosta. So it's bordering Switzerland in the north, okay. France in the east. And uh, the vineyards, you're actually the highest altitude in all of Europe. You're uh, minutes away from the, uh, from the top of, of Mount Blanc, so base of Mount Blanc. This is made with an indigenous grape called Pre Blanc. So right now in our glasses, we have our Pavese is the name of the producer. And mm-hmm. uh, the region, which is a DOC, is called Blanc de Morgex et de la Soleil. Mm. Uh, it is a very restrained, highly mineral-driven white wine that's just ultra crisp. And you know, I just want lots and lots of seafood with this wine. Well, you know what's interesting about this wine and the region that it comes from is that it, you would think – because of the high altitude that it could veer towards the sweet side a little bit or have a more sugar that's taste a, on the tongue, but it really doesn't. That's a fantastic point. Yeah, so you would think that how can the grapes possibly ripen at this altitude? So right. there would be some residual sugar to the wine, but no, this is completely fermented to dryness. Uh, they do something called pergola basso, which is um, low-trained vines to the, to the earth, and they actually build these stone walls around the vines. Uh, it's really, really impressive winemaking, really artisanal. There's not a lot of these bottles on the market today, but... Um, I think this is a beautiful example. Is of climate gorgeous. change messing okay, with any no, of no, that? No. We well, have no time. Just, we have to go uh, to yes our or no, guest. and then because we can follow up with that. I mean, are they feeling that up there or no? Uh, not as much up there, um, but other regions absolutely. Sure. Yes. All right. Okay, we'll come back to you. All right. Now we're going to talk to Jim Snedeker, who is CEO of a really cool company. He is it's basically so- designer wear for hospitality teams. Okay, so. Let me introduce this. Okay, okay. I, I'm going to so, let Nikki introduce So you. when you go into a restaurant, provided you're going into a restaurant, which you should be with your mask and your vaccination card, um, <laughs> your server, the person behind the maitre d' or behind the hostess stand, your bartender, your som, everybody is dressed a particular way. But, you know, they didn't just get up that morning and put on their clothes and say, yeah, this is what I'm wearing to work. Usually there's a method to that madness, and that's where Jim comes in. Hey, Jim, how are you? Hey, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about your workwear company and how you got involved in the hospitality industry. Yeah, sure. It's uh, kind of a winding road, but I'll try to condense it uh, for radio here. Mm-hmm. So we we started the company about 10 years ago, and we were a men's fashion brand. So like think J. Crew, Gittman Brothers Vintage, Engineered Garments, just kind of classic menswear. And our the, the sort of the hook with our business is that we had – a factory in Chicago that we were partnered with. Mm. And so we were doing all the design, develop, manufacturing all under one roof. And we were selling direct to consumer at, you know, a fraction, you know, half the price it would cost if we were going directly to, to retailers. And we built a nice following. It was the the brand was going pretty well, um, you know, better than we had expected. Um, but around the end of our first year, beginning of our second year in business, we actually got an email or a text from the at the time, the executive chef at Next Restaurant. So mm-hmm. if you're familiar with the dining scene in Chicago, Alinea and Next are, you know, at the time, Alinea was Nackets. the number one ranked restaurant right. in the entire world, right? So um, they wanted to switch their uniforms. The, that particular chef is a fan of our brand. So we went in and uh, met with the whole team, met with chef, met with the servers, and developed this, like, really custom uniform piece for them that, you know, eight and a half, eight years later now, they're still actually wearing to this day. Wow. And as you know, yeah, yeah, it was, it's very cool. And it was a, a, you know, in our mind, we were 
super broke. We had started this business from scratch and we we're like, you know, they're going to pay us X amount of money to make these uniforms. And it's a cool brand to align with. Like we can make this make sense for our, for our menswear brand. Mm -hmm. And as you know, it's a small industry. And next thing you know, we had, um, actually RPM steak in Chicago was one of the very, one of our so, very first customers as well, which then led to Italian. If I can interrupt um, for a second, Nick can't hear you, but yeah. Nick, they oh. design, uh, RPMs, uh, uniforms. I know it's such a small world. Okay, yeah. sorry. Go ahead, Joe. Yeah. No, so that's that we've been doing that since they opened as well. Um, mm -hmm. And then it just kind of let one thing led to another. And then the kind of the big thing that, that sort of pivoted the business, uh, sort of a seismic shift was when Soho House opened in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And they, they approached us to be members. And we were like, listen, we, we have none of us have any money to pay for a Soho House membership right now. <laughs> but we can do your we can do your uniforms. Uh, and that ended up being a huge project for us. And that led to doing a couple more Soho houses. And we got press around that. And just, a, you know, Soho House is really a, a, a design leader. They're a trend leader in that space. And, well, so I'm going to stop you there because uh, we have to take a break, Jim. But I want to get more into the specifics of what these designs look like and what it's like for you to work with an RPM or a Soho House or some of the other properties that you're working with here in D.C. or across the country and how you execute somebody's idea to create the design. This is David and Nikki Nellis. Sure. It's Foodie and the Beast. We will be back in just a sec. All right. We're back on Foodie and the Beast uh, with Jim Snedeker, who is um, designing fashion lines, really, for hospitality teams. Um, Jim, I come out of, you know, department store retailing and, um, you know, you have buyers who will just buy what's out there because it's easy and they're lazy. And then you'll have buyers who are just popping with ideas and they'll come to folks like you and say, I want this, I want that. But these are people with experience in in ready-to-wear apparel, for example, or something like that. Mm -hmm. What's the difference between that and working with somebody who's, you know, I mean, certainly creative folks uh, on the restaurant side who just say, I don't really know what I want, but I'm, I feel it should evoke this kind of feeling. Does yeah, it make it tougher? Create, how do you create uniforms that are sexy or, you know, or execute but the functional. vision? Right. Yeah, yeah. So it really runs a gamut. I mean, we're working with, a lot of different types of people. I mean, we've, we've got hundreds of clients around the country. So one project is often different, very different from the next, but the, the most common process for us is we have an initial call with someone. They tell us what they're, let, let's say this is pre-opening. Okay. Not changing a, uh, an existing uniform. Mm -hmm. um, they come to us, they tell us what they're looking to do. They explain their vision for the, for the hotel or the restaurant to us. And then we'll go back. They'll send us interior design renderings, a brand book, any of the stuff they've already invested into. Like the, a vision the, board kind brand. of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And then we'll go back and put together a, a presentation in Illustrator, um, you know, like kind of 3D rendered models of what we think the uniform program should look like there, present it to them, and usually have some some tweaking or some fine tuning from there. And then once it's approved, we get some samples into uh, the decision maker's hands. They approve them or they thumbs down them hopefully they approve them and then <laughs> and then you go you into know, production yeah right so we carry a lot of items that are already in stock ready to go mm -hmm. so we try to build our uniform programs um kind of around these core in stock items and then we layer on really custom things like what? the jackets for rpm are custom that's that's the jacket that every time the jackets yeah. at rpm are custom did you know that nick i did yeah. he does he knows he's it. wearing one under his sport coat <laughs> right now i have a question yeah. for you something jumped out that you you provided to us because I have a, a client, Danaher Corporation, founded in the early 80s, and in the late 80s, they brought folks from Toyota in to learn that whole lean Toyota productivity, you know, Kaizen and all that, mm -hmm. constantly reaching for perfection. 
Um, and it says here that you guys use that. So how did you get hooked on that and, and how do you apply it? Yeah, so that's interesting. So we, um, way back when we were still partnered with this factory in Chicago, we had decided that we needed to break away and build our own factory. And I, it was not a decision I took lightly, so I got super obsessive about making sure it wasn't a failure and learning everything I could about setting it up the right way. And I got really into lean and the Toyota production system. So from a manufacturing perspective, we built this factory that was set up with modular sewing, um, you know, basically all the, the core whole production tenants of, of lean manufacturing. Regardless, the factory was a huge failure, and now we do everything overseas. That's a story for a different time, okay. uh, a lesson learned. But as far as the the business itself, I apply lean principles. I mean, most people do, I think, these days without even really thinking about it. But, um, you know, not carrying large amounts of excess inventory, everything is, everything has a place and everything in its place, continuous improvement, all of those sort of core tenets of, of lean. Very smart. Production are, it well, works. So let's I talk about the changes in hospitality over the, like, especially now with COVID, I mean, how has that changed mm -hmm. what you guys are doing? And I mean, even though, unfortunately, there are lots of restaurants closing, there's lots of restaurants opening. And are people still finding that it's important to their aesthetic to have uniforms to go with it? Absolutely. So we, um, it was actually pretty crazy timing. We had like formally officially shut down the menswear brand and started investing in in stock uniforms because it used to be Every single project we did was completely custom, and it was a, that was a lot to manage. And not every client has the minimum order quantities they can do, mm -hmm. the lead times they can handle. So we decided to invest in the, you know, stop investing in a brand and start investing in our our apparel, our menswear brand or our um, uniform brand. And that really got rolling right before COVID hit. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, everyone was shut down, and then they're opening up with skeleton crews. They're opening up suddenly. You know, the mayors and governors were passing and shutting things down, up right. and down all the time. So luckily we were all of a sudden we were a vendor that had a large amount of inventory and SKUs that were in stock and ready to ship with no minimum order quantities the next day. So that really was a very fortuitous thing that we put that in place for our How do you handle the sizing? COVID. That's amazing. Because you're going to have people that are, you're going to have you you know, like XXS me. and who are tiny like Nikki or big brawny brutes like me. I'm lying. <laughs> but uh, I mean, you know, you, the, um, you've got size ranges. I, I, isn't there a lot? I mean, aren't, don't you have stuff that just sits on the shelf and doesn't get used? Yeah, so I mean, we obviously have a lot of data over the years that we know what sizes sell. It's very similar to retail. You're going to sell a lot more mediums and larges than yep. anything else. Extra small is not as much. Um, in hospitality, we we sell a fair amount of XLs and double XLs as well. Um, are you insinuating then, that people you know, in the hospitality industry are large, Jim? I don't think he's insinuating more, at all. <laughs> I'm just saying that is that's a trend that we've noticed. I okay. just follow the data. All right, all right so listen, Jim, we only have a minute left. So let's talk cannabis. Yeah, let's talk cannabis. Yay. I feel like we bury the lead. So how do you go into the cannabis industry and why? So we had a, a theory two years ago that with all the, the licensing coming down and, and cannabis becoming, dispensaries becoming more, more widespread, that they were going to have to start treating them like a hospitality industry. The cannabis was no longer just hang your shingle outside and you'd have a line of people down the street because you're only you're the only game in town. Mm -hmm. So we had a hypothesis that people started investing in brand, um, just like bars and restaurants and hotels do. So we started reaching out to cannabis companies, the ones that looked like industry leaders, and saying, "Hey, you know, we can put together a, a uniform program that's affordable and modular and easy to use, and we'll keep your staff looking way more professional than just being in a tea in a winter beanie." And it resonated with some, and it's starting to resonate with more, and that's the way it's gone. Well, I think, I mean, I, I think you're so ahead of the curve on that. Yeah. I, it's amazing because that is, I just know based on you and I talked about this offline, based on the pitches I'm getting and what's going on out there, 
the hospitality industry is ready to treat, you know, cannabis as no differently than a bar, right? So that you're not yeah, just totally. going in and buying it. You're having an experience just like you would when you go in a bar and order a cocktail, right? That's exactly right. So if you're ever at a sunny side dispensary uh, around you, that's all the staff there is us. Excellent. I never thought I would live to see the day. Uh, Jim, how do people reach you and find out more about stock? Yes. Yeah, you can go to www.stockmfgco.com mm -hmm. and pretty much all of our stuff is there available to shop um, or you can reach out for a custom project. And our social media handles are all just at stockmfgco. All right. Excellent. The Thanks, list Jim. will have it too, right? I have all of it and I'll be all cool. over my social media. That was Thanks, great, Jim. Man. Thanks for your time. Great. Okay, Nick. Yeah, thank you so much. We're going sure. back to pleasure. you. You too. RPM. So let's talk a little bit. So, you know, what's fascinating, and I, I'm pretty sure you know this, but the chef community here in D.C., including those who own Italian restaurants, think some of the best pasta is at RPM. Do you know that rumor? Like, do you know that that's where the chefs are to eat The rumors pasta? are true. Well, can okay. I, I think it is. Well, I mean, I mean good it pasta was, in city, but. listen, pasta's, as an Italophile, I can tell you, pasta's probably the hardest thing to cook because one minute longer in that pot and it tastes like, you know, it's got the consistency of library paste, one minute less and it's like crunchy. And to make something that's al dente is not easy. It's not, you know, a no-brainer. My wife can do it, by the way. Yes, I can do it. So let's talk about the wines that are available to go with the pasta, because I think there is a misconception that you really should only be drinking white with pasta because it's normally lighter, right? But that's so not true. I think it has a lot to do with uh, not just the pasta, but the sauces. Mm -hmm. uh, so with a tomato sauce coming from, uh, you know, a lot of the, the southern Italian dishes with, yeah, with more tomato sauces. I love high acid reds. Absolutely. Uh, a, a great Chianti Classico, which is very classic with something like a Pomodoro sauce. Mm -hmm. um, but you could also uh, go even further south into to Sicily, um, to Etna. One of my favorite varieties, Norello Mascalese. Sing to me, baby. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of flexibility as far as wine and pasta, but it, it's largely dependent on, on the style of the sauce. Well, since you okay. brought it up, let's segue to that. Because what are you pouring next? I, well, I moved you. You gave us a, a, a progression of wines you wanted to discuss, but I moved the Sicilian wine up to this segment. Well, I mean, But it's his oh, job. I know. He's going to pour it the way he wants. What are you pouring next? So next up, uh, we absolutely can do the Sicilian, but I thought it would be fun to do our second white, which is um, a yes. Roman-era grape variety that was nearly lost and brought back into existence by a producer called Vestini Campagnano. And the mm -hmm. grape is Palagrello Bianco. Can't wait. To and what Bianco. is it about this grape that you like so much? So it's the most unique thing I've ever tasted. Uh, it is, there's nothing quite else like it. First of all, the color is rose gold. Um, it's mm. super floral. It's very unctuous, meaning oily on the palate. So does that make it an orange wine or no? Not quite an orange wine, but it does have a unique sort of tinge to it. Okay, great. Uh, all right. So while you're pouring that, we're going to go to our next guest, Scott Harris. So Scott. I know, even though he's into spirits, he does have a thing for wine, too. Yeah. Right? Hey, Scott, how are you? Anything potable. <laughs> All right, I was so, like desperately wanting to try that wine you just talked about. I know. Well, you're going to have to go into RPM. Well, let's make sure pour. people know if they tuned in late. Scott and Becky Harris are the geniuses behind Catoctin Creek Distilling. Uh, we had them on the show. A I, thousand I mean, times. A thousand times. But the first time, you had just gone into business. This is probably in 2009-ish. Ten years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And now you're—I mean, forget the awards and everything else. Now you're—you're—you're you're, you're almost global. I mean, you have distribution everywhere, and you are—in uh, fact, one of your sons lives in Texas, so he can handle the business out of the South, right? That's right. Well, Man. so right. since we've had you and Becky on so many times, I, I don't want to do a rabbit hole deep dive on what you guys do. But can, for people who may not be familiar, or maybe don't recall, can you give us a quick four one one? Yeah, sure. So Catoctin Creek—we've been around for about thirteen years. 
and we're producing out of Percival, Virginia. So about an hour's drive, about 20 minutes west of Dulles Airport. And uh, what we're known for is making the Virginia rye whiskey. So it's a rye whiskey style that was common in Virginia in the 1700s, 1800s. And uh, so that basically means, you know, Virginia grain, pot stilled whiskey, um, aged in our Virginia climate using Virginia water. So we just want that terroir in the whiskey. When you drink it, a Virginia whiskey like ours, it doesn't taste like the stuff you're getting from Kentucky, Indiana. Is it true know, that Robert E. Lee was so stoned on rye whiskey that that's why they lost the Civil War, thank goodness? It, no, actually, I think it was Grant who was the big alcoholic, but we, <laughs> I guess Grant won anyway. He so. liked bourbon. I got <laughs> so what is it about the Virginia terroir, now that you have been doing this for as long as you have, <laughs> How has that expanded for you all? Like you had a vision, you accomplished it, but all things must evolve. So how did you guys evolve? Well, it, you know, it's interesting because we've kind of learned as we've gone, you know, we didn't get into the spirits industry with a lot of spirits knowledge and we were just making something we liked. Um, and as we started selling our whiskey, you know, it had a different flavor. You know, people would tell us this doesn't taste like rye whiskey and we'd be offended. We'd be like, what do you mean? It's hundred percent rye. How can it not it's taste like rye? rye whiskey? Right. Yeah. And so we, we had to learn, actually, that it really was a matter of terroir. You know, when people drink a, a rye whiskey from the Midwest, it tastes, you know, herbish. It tastes like grass and dill and mint, you know, these green flavors. And ours tastes fruity and nutty, you know, cherries and plums and things like that. And so it was just a whole different terroir and different taste. And, and, and that's the real um, selling point. So, you know, it's easy to sell it here in the local area because we're kind of a local favorite. People want to drink local. But when you're selling it in Las Vegas or Finland or, you know, one of these places that we sell, you know, what's the compulsion? Why would they care? And, and really it comes down to sort of that that flavor, that unique flavor and the history that comes from Virginia. Rye well, whiskey, what about know? the we have, to, we have to take a break. Oh, we do. Okay. Yeah. Scott, hold on a sec. We're going to take a quick break. Okay. When we come back. I mean, listen, I know you guys do so much of the distillery, but the fact that you sell internationally is really interesting. So we want to talk about that for just a exactly. sec. This is David okay. and Nikki Nellis. It's Foodie and the Beast. We're talking local whiskey and we'll be back in just a sec back on foodie and the beast with david and nikki nellis we're talking to our our old friend who is one of the two founders well scott harris is an old friend we've known him 14 years all right so scott we were talking about what it takes to to sell a virginia rye whiskey outside of virginia when you go to finland um and they don't know diddly squat about virginia or virginia rye or you how do you approach it what's the sell well, basically, you know, they, they do actually know more about Virginia than I think a lot of people understand. You know, George Washington is kind of well known internationally as, you know, the first president, all these kinds of things. And and uh, so when we start, we usually start with some history. And, you know, Jamestown, the first permanent British colony in, in America, um, right away at the beginning, a guy named George Thorpe started making whiskey. And uh, and then for, for 170 years, even before the revolution, um, all those local colonists were making rye whiskey on a little home scale. Uh, farm scale. So that history really played well and people understand it. And then we're like, now here, taste something that is of that time um, as best as we can make it of that time. So, you know, we use organic heritage grains uh, that would replicate the grains they would have back in those days. Um, and, and, and and I think that story is compelling. And then when they taste it, and it tastes amazing. Then usually you're sold. But your line has expanded. So you're selling other things too. That... Yeah, we, we mostly stick with the rye. We have brownstone rye represents probably 85% of everything we sell, but we have, you know, some, some, uh, the rabble rouser, which is our bottled and bond rye coming out next month. Um, and we have, um, some little single malt projects like we did with port city. We basically turned some of their beer into a single malt whiskey. Um, and we make a line of brandies and a really excellent gin. And what made you guys decide to expand that way? I mean, why do gin? Gin, I find it's, is a tougher 
Because there's so many gins. There's, well, yeah, there's so we many whiskeys. Yeah, we gin from day one. Um, and that was because we had some of the byproduct whiskey uh, of the whiskey production that we couldn't use for whiskey. And so we started um, infusing it with herbs and selling gin. And now it's become quite popular, especially in the local area. Well, um, also, yeah. isn't gin a quicker turnaround yeah, than yeah, whiskey? Yeah. And so that's a nice way to get, you know, some, some quicker revenue than, mm-hmm. you know, waiting several years for the whiskey to develop. So well, now you have a distillery property where you mm-hmm. host events was that always was that always part of the plan yeah when we bought um we started in a little garage and we had never at the beginning um planned on having visitors and people started showing up for tours and so when we moved out of that place in 2013 and moved into our our place that we're in today on main street maybe you need some uniforms from jim go ahead (laughs) i was thinking about that i wrote down his website (laughs) um the, uh, we're not on commission, by the way. Right, no commission. We're just not yet, right, Jim? Networking. Go ahead. <laughs> Throw them a buck or two. Um, the, uh, when we moved into the new place, tourism became a part of it. And we have this beautiful, restored, 100-year-old building. Um, and uh, so we wanted to basically make use of that building. So now we do dinners and, and events in there um, as, as long as COVID allows us to do that. Well, sure. well let's talk about these events that you're doing because you have regular events now that you're mm-hmm. hosting, right? And it's you. Yeah. Yeah, so the one that we're doing right now is called Art of the Cocktail, and it's an event that we're now in our eighth, eighth or ninth season, um, and it's a six weeks course, six week course. And so every week on Friday evening at seven o'clock, we do about a two hour thing, and I basically have a little syllabus I put together that walks through some segment of history of the cocktail, which is something I really enjoy. Um, and we make four different cocktails. And when COVID happened, before COVID, BC, this class was uh, an in person class, so people would come and. And we would have set up a little mise in place, you know, with all the little bottles and bitters and all these things. And then we'd say, okay, we're all going to learn how to make a Martinez. And we'd walk through it and talk about the history of the Martinez, things like that. And, um, and, and then when COVID happened, we were like, crap, how are we going to, how are we going to do this? We, we still want to do it. And we, we changed it to a Zoom class. And so what I did is I would put out a shopping list and say, okay, you guys all go out and get these things, you know, at your local grocery store. We dropped the price of the thing down a lot because we didn't have to pay for all the materials anymore. It was just, you know, admission for people. And uh, and so then people go out and they buy the stuff and then they come to this class and what it's turned into is uh, like a happy hour. So, you know, last night we had one of the classes, we had 80 people on the Zoom. Good. I had people as far away as Fairbanks, Alaska and Seattle and South Carolina joining us for this thing so it's become kind of nationally known which is just surprising to me um and and the people we're we're now in several seasons of this so the people actually know each other and unbeknownst to me they had an after party last night so at the end of the class they 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 put in the chat window a link for another zoom to keep the party going so you know it's kind of like it's kind of like no it's like nomad land with all the networking you know they're meeting up or it's like, remember the old school days where you used to get, I mean, I never did this, but like there was like those house party lines, you know, where everybody yeah. get on the phone and talk. I mean, that's kind of what it's like. With video, right? So right. people actually see each other, you know, people are like, oh, this is the segment that where we're really going to cool. bring out our dogs and show everybody our dogs, you know, and things like that. So it's just become a really neat community. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm kind of proud that it's developed the way it has. And people have told us that, you know, the, 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 the class has become sort of their, you know, Friday night, you know, happy hour kind of thing, you know, so that they kind of look forward to it as a date night or something like that. So there's a lot of families and couples on there and, you know, house where three couples will be in one dining room doing the thing with us. Um, so so that's yeah, fun. Well, for people who are listening who want to get in on it, first of all, what's it cost and how do they do it's, it? It's $15 per person. So that's pretty affordable. 
Um, and uh, you need to have, you know, the materials and the willingness to go through and, and drink four cocktails and wow. not get on the road. And stay that home. is so smart. I mean, there is a beauty to that, right? I mean, sort yeah. of yeah. Like not being worried about people leaving your distillery and not being able to drive, exactly. right? It's a yeah. little bit. Yeah. Um, so, so now this is just going falling on. down the steps on the way to bed. Right? How do you come up with your curriculum? <laughs> How do you decide what you want to teach? So we, we've had different themes each year we do it. We have a different theme. And so right now I'm working through the history of the cocktail chronologically. So we started in 1804 with the old fashioned, and then we enter into the period where Jerry Thomas writes the first cocktail book. Uh, so last night we did gin cocktails as they start to flourish. Um, and these are old school cocktails like the Tom Collins, you know, very simple old fashioned recipes. Um, and then next week we're getting into the 1890s where we get into vermouth coming into play where mm. Manhattan's martinis get invented. So that'll be fun. That is fun. And I love how you're doing it because, uh, you know, to the uninitiated, there is a really rich uh, history to cocktails, especially right. in this country and how they were, you know, if you like a Tom Collins or whatever it is, you know, I don't think a lot of people realize like what it is about it and how it's balanced and, right. you know, what it takes to create a cocktail that tastes good while your cocktail, right. you know, at a restaurant or, or at a bar tastes a certain way than compared to how you do it at home when you're like not measuring or you don't have the supplies or yada, 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 right? Right. Well, that's the other part of it is it's sort of, you know, an ability to build confidence in people who are maybe a little bit intimidated by what they see as all this mixology. It's like, look, you only need four or five main ingredients. You can keep some of these around. And then when you whip up a cocktail for somebody, you know, they're going to be really impressed by that. I mean, I am going to say you have a massive bar behind you when you are not in a restaurant, like a massive bar. So that would not instill confidence in me to be like, oh, I can do whatever I want because look at that guy's bar. <laughs> really, you know, I think with, we, I really try to make it approachable. So, you know, really with like four or five, you know, bottles of stuff and some bitters and a couple things of vermouth, you kind of have everything you need for most, you know, most cocktails. So you have the shopping list online. Everybody can see the shopping list for the next class. Like once you sign up, you get a shopping list. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So if people are interested, they can go to um, either katoctoncreek.com. Mm-hmm. Hit the, hit the tab that says events, and that's going to get you to that um, next class. Or if you can't remember that, you can just go to buyvirginiarye.com. Okay. And I want to remind everybody, every single class is on the list or you want it.com. So you can always find information there and click right to to yeah. sign up. Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. It's always good to see you. Please say hi to Becky. Uh, and I we're will. always like fascinated. By I saw what? her trying to get on camera and you kept pushing her away. <laughs> Uh, I think this is going to your head. But... Okay. Anyway, so thanks, Scott. Thank Scott you, Harris, Kentucky Bye, Street. Scott. Thank you. All right. So, Nick, I want to go back to you. Oh, that... now we're going to talk about Vini Franchetti. But that wine was really This wine is great. Glorious. I don't know if you didn't pour it for me that I would have ordered it based on how you described it because I'm always afraid when it comes to whites of a high residual sugar. I don't know why. It's an irrational fear. But that's where my head went when you were explaining She's it. She's also afraid of bugs. I so. also, it's also irrational. But um, so that white was really beautiful. When people come to the restaurant, are do you, are people drinking more whites, or because it's winter, are they drinking more reds? You see uh, a little bit of both. I think um, I love. I, I was really excited to bring two white wines today because I think Italy is really known for their red wines, and the white wines have never really achieved the greatness that you find in other countries like France. Mm-hmm. But there are some newer producers that have popped up over the past decade or so, and you find some really fantastic uh, white wines, such as what we have in our glass right now, that I think really um, 
uh, competes with the Remind great like, Chablis. Remind me what it's called again. So uh, the producer is Vestini Campagnano. Uh-huh. A little bit of a mouthful of this one. Mm. Uh, and the grape variety is Pallagrello Bianco, which okay. was actually widely written about um, by Pliny the Elder and the Naturalist. Mm-hmm. And it was the wine of noblemen and of kings and queens. And uh, this producer, it was it was lost to time over the years. This producer, Vestini Campagnano, actually found some cuttings growing in the wild and uh, vinified the grapes and created this amazing wine that was just so unique and has championed it and has actually told and, and taught some of the surrounding wineries, the competing wineries, how to make it um, because the wine, it, it is magical, I think. It's dry. It's, it's got so the florality of, of a Viognier, but it's not as, um, it's got some acidity to it as well, so right. it can pair well with, with different dishes. You guys are killing me because you're eating up okay, sorry. time when okay. we can talk about the Vini Franchetti <laughs> from, from the slope, reds. from the let's hills of yes. Etna, yes. which is my jam. So, okay, so here's a big question about wines from Mount Etna because they have exploded uh, over, you know, like the last 10 years. I mean, obviously they've always been there, but there has become an American appetite for them. What do you think that's about? Like, was there a huge marketing push? It's about I mean, they're that good. No, I know, but they weren't on the American radar. Lots of restaurants weren't carrying them. You certainly couldn't find them in your local wine store, but there's been a dramatic shift. Yes, definitely. There's a huge uh, renaissance, I think, of these wines coming from Etna. Um, the vines are 100-plus year, years old. In many mm-hmm. cases, they're super gnarly, and they don't yield as many grapes. But of the grapes that they do yield, uh, the wines are powerful and concentrated and uh, incredibly complex. But I think the recent push is because you see a lot of um, important wine uh, winemakers coming from the mainland, like Vinnie Franchetti, which we're going to taste here soon, uh, a really prominent producer in Tuscany, realized right. the incredible terroir that the volcano Etna has. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's adventurous wine ed- winemaking. I mean, these these people that are creating wine on this volcano that it c- could explode at any moment, right. um, they're fatalists, and they accept what will happen. Uh, and I climbed, I climbed Mount Etna and looked down. You know, it was just sort of steaming and smelling like sulfur. It never <laughs> occurred to me I could get a face full of lava. Okay, so, so very quickly, tell us what you're pouring next, and then we'll get into it when we come back to you. Sure, so next up we have our uh, Vinny Franchetti, and this is a Etna Rosso, but it's from a specific vineyard. And in Etna, we call the single vineyards or crews Contrada. So this is Contrada Chara Nuova, which means translates to new lava flow. This is a newer lava flow from where do these you, vines are Do you are speak Italian now? No. no. Okay. <laughs> Let's move on. Yet. Okay, we have right. to take a quick break. When we come back, Fiona Lewis is joining us. We're going to talk about the fish business, especially now in COVID. We'll be back in just a sec. All right, we're back on Foodie and the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis. With and glasses of Mount Edna glasses. Red. Thank Yay. you, Vini Franchetti. Um, but our next mm-hmm. guest, and, and you know, we've already had a wine that goes with fish, is is a really spectacular woman named Fiona Lewis, who owns three businesses at Union Market, all to do with fish. She's D.C.'s first female fishmonger, but she's also, and this is something that I, I just blew my mind, she's a recipient of the James Beard Foundation's uh, Women in Entrepreneurial Leadership Fellowship, and mm-hmm. it, that's a big deal. It is a very and big deal. And she stands out. She, she's a, a big proponent of, of you know wild seafood and sustainability and supporting wild fisheries, and that's what we want to talk about. Before we talk about the businesses is how did you – how did you? What's your fish story, man? How'd you, be, how'd you get into fish? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I don't have a fish story. No, I'm joking. Of course I do. Uh, so I, you know, both of my grandparents were avid fishermen. I used to go fishing with one of my uh, grandfathers out in the bay in Melbourne, where I'm from in Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other one, my other grandfather, he lived in central Victoria. And so we used to do a lot of river freshwater fish fishing up there. My dad obsessed with fish he always has been so I think at the age of 13 I did my first autopsy on a fish in the garage mm-hmm. my dad's garage 
couldn't fit cars. It was all about tanks, breeding um, endangered species. The Murray Cod at the time was quite highly endangered, so that was a pet project of his. That must have been a big fun. garage. Yeah. It was a six-car carriage yeah. that, okay. didn't fit in, that didn't fit cars. It's a car so, barn. Yeah, that's the fun part. But, uh, you know, so there was that. And uh, and then when I joined the hospitality industry, um, what, I'm 50, so ugh, 30 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I navigated towards seafood. Go figure why. Right. So hard it's in your blood. Um, in your blood. Yeah. And uh, it sort of yeah has blossomed from there. I know, but so there is a love for fish, a love of aquaculture and uh, sustainability, and then there's making it your profession. Um, well, there's caring and oh, caring and I, enough I about it. Mention that, oh, sorry. I, I just going to say back in the '80s, my parents did have a, a fish farm. Oh, okay. So they were huge proponents of aquaculture back then, and that's part of where I got my education. So when you came to the states and you decided to open up in Union Market. Um, they did not have a fishmonger there at the time. There was uh, the butchers and, uh, you know, it's more grab and go kind of stuff. But how did you decide to open that there? Because you didn't just order a place where you could buy fish. You also cook fish. So you it's almost a mini restaurant as well. Yeah, essentially the district fishwife has two sort of separate businesses going on. So the retail seafood market and we were a quick serve restaurant as well. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'd been here for three years at least before we decided to open and I was really missing getting a good Australian style fish and chips there's obviously a couple of great spots um for British uh, for, for the well for what's the, the British, difference obviously. well I mean primarily our batters is the same uh, mm-hmm. uh but primarily for the fish so traditionally in Australia you can get a choice of x amount of fish you want for your fish and chips but the baseline give me a fish and chips will be what we call flake which uh, is meaning a type of shark Oh, interesting. And that's, and that's we we use um, Atlantic dogfish, which is a small sustainable shark mm-hmm. caught out of the Chatham fishery up in Massachusetts. And that helps support local fishermen there because their cod fishery there collapsed yeah. quite a few years ago. Right. So they switched, they pivoted, and uh, I love supporting them. And, of course, it makes the best fish and chips in the world, but I'm not biased. No. <laughs> not at all. Well, so let's talk about, you know, having a fish shop, fish restaurants, with a mission is really fishing with a mission no 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 but you understand yeah. what i'm saying right like your mission i know please you can roll your eyes all day um but uh fi- a, a restaurant concept or a retail concept with a mission and and maintaining that mission is very difficult especially in covid right so because of all the supply chain issues and things like that how are you able to maintain your mission given what's going on out there right now if I can't get a product, I don't sell it. I mean, don't sell it. We don't have it. And, right. and that's happening and things are changing along those lines. Mm-hmm. Personally, when we first I came to America, I was so surprised about the negativity that still holds here against aquaculture. Mm-hmm. A lot of places in the rest of the world, including Australia, have learned that in order to even support our wild fisheries, aquaculture is essential. Aquaculture is the fish of the future with some caveats. You know, it's got to be done well. It's right. like anything in life. You can't just generically accept oh aquaculture is amazing but it really needs to be promoted and i've been very very fortunate in the time i've spent you know going on panels and other things talking about it in the last eight years we've been open nearly nine um yeah we've really seen some changes so i I love that there is a big push right i mean where we live in dc i i think not all the chefs but uh, you know there is a, a huge community of people that believe in sustainability and and having fresh and of course um uh 
like uh, like the snakefish, things like that, like getting rid of invasive species and making sure, yep. you know, finding creative ways. Uh, how do you go about sort of educating your client? I mean, DC does have an educated diner, but not everybody who comes in knows knows your mission or understands what you're doing. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, so to any individual who walks in and says, do you have any wild, you know, salmon? And it's the middle of winter when the season's closed and I don't have any in the case fresh. I only have some frozen in the grab and go freezer. I try and engage them and flip them in the idea of where we are now that, you know, you you can go over to that butcher where 98% of what he's selling, uh, you know, is coming from a farm or (laughs) you can get a lot of wild things here. But, you know, we really need to change our eyes on how aquaculture is. Um, one thing I'd love to see in, mm-hmm. and I tell all my chef buddies, we need to start recognising as you walk up to a butcher and if you go to Harvey's, you're like, oh, there's Rosetta Farms. I want that. So since day one, any farmed aquaculture that we have, we mm-hmm. have the brand name of the exact farm that we're using. I want you to ask me about it. I want you to Google them and check them out, see why they're so good. Look at Monterey Bay, look at Ocean Wise. If you mm-hmm. don't trust me, Right. I think my regulars think, oh, if she's got it, they just I'm taking the hard work out for them. So they've got a great idea there. But I'd love to see chefs saying on their menus, this is Glory Bay Gold, King Salmon. All right. Well, I want to ask, I want to take us to a different place, kind of a doomsday place, because when we started talking loves about. Let's go doomsday. <laughs> let's go doomsday. I don't want to go doomsday. No, no, no. But when we started doing the show and started talking about sustainability, there was a lot of press that the oceans were essentially going to be fished out by 2048. And, you know, there's a push now, there has been for the last 15 years up in Alaska, this group wants to open Pebble Mine to mine for gold, and it's only going to threaten 25 million salmon that spawn, you know. Right, in these. So, yeah. So, I mean, what's your take on the future? Are we doomed? Uh, or are you an optimist? Is, you know, and, are we, and are, in, in, in 20 years, will we just be eating farmed fish, nothing out of the oceans? Absolutely not. In 20 years, we will not just be eating farm fish. There are a lot of well-managed fisheries out there around the world, and there's still a bunch that aren't. Right. But will we ever get back to the same levels that a lot of these, uh, you know, really heavy environmentally conscious people will talk about that fishery numbers used to be in the hundreds of thousands of pounds, and now they're down to 50,000 Yeah, I mean, are, are the cod coming back fisheries? to Amityville? You know. We will never get back to those old rates. But if we can maintain that, I'm just making a number here, right. 50,000 pound fishery forever, which we've been doing on some fisheries, that's it. That's the fishery. We keep those stock levels and we manage what we're doing really well. And America does a great job of their fishery management. What about the Sorry, no, no, no. We have to, Fiona. I, I want to know I more. Know, we can go down such a rabbit hole with you. You're so You're interesting. So and I do want to tell people um, you also do classes with uh, the Hill Center. Um, so when you have that, do you have a date when you're going to be there? I don't have a date. It'll be sometime in spring. We're going to see what we need to do for that. Okay. And, uh, surprisingly enough, I'll be doing something with seafood. Go figure. Yeah, go mm. figure. All right. Tell everybody where they can no, find no, you. No, no, go fish. Just, uh, uh, everybody where they can find you. So I also helped Micheline form the DC Women in Food group here, support yes. group. We're big and on that. We, we have some exciting news coming up very soon. We'll be releasing that out. So keep your eyes peeled for that. It's Great. an amazing collaboration. Just so you know, Diane and Micheline and Ruth have been on, on the regular yeah. to tell us about what's been yeah. happening. Yeah. So, so that's good to know. Tell everybody where they can find you on Instagram, please. At DC Fishwife. Excellent. Thanks, Fiona. <laughs> Thank you for your time today. Uh, Nick, 
You did not disappoint with this. No, this wine is. This is showing really well. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, show, it's showing schmoing. It's tasting really <laughs> it's good. It's so good. So, oh, you Wait, I know because we're going to switch and we're going to talk Barolo, but before you go, we are headed for Sardinia in a couple of months. And I so jealous. Talk, Sardin- so am I. I want to go there now. <laughs> but I want to talk a little bit about Sardinian wines, too, because I don't know spit about those. Yeah, okay. so uh, Grape Vermentino from Galora. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a grape called Cannonau, which is actually the Grenache grape. Um, that's found throughout the island. And then uh, some of my favorite wines are actually coming from the Solchis, the southern tip of Sardinia, where you mm. find um, Carignan or Carignano. Uh, really bold, uh, powerful reds. Well, oh, we're going to be cool. down at the southern tip. Yes, we will. So, uh, so as um, a Somme coming into a restaurant of the size of RPM, and you have all these amazing wines, how much R&D do you get to do? And because your, your portfolio is already so big, how often are you restocking it? Uh, great question. So, I mean, pre-COVID, lots of R&D, which means lots of travel. Um, mm-hmm. the, the wine we're drinking now, I was actually able, fortunate enough to visit the vineyard um, in Etna. So uh, that was the We're, R- we're the available R&D. for your, you can introduce us as your parents. Right. Uh, <laughs> you're invited. Speak for yourself. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so as far as uh, uh, buying and, and during these, these strange times, it's, it's a little bit more difficult than it was. Uh, mm-hmm. Logistics of shipping and Obviously. availability of product. So it's a constant roller coaster. Okay, very quickly. Tell us about the Barolo because we have to wrap up. We do? Yes. Yeah, so uh, so Barolo is coming up next. We have a wonderful producer. Uh, it's a little bit of a, a longer name as well. This is uh, Marquis Umberto Fricassi Rati Menton. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he is the only producer located in the commune of Kirosco, westernmost part of Barolo. Very, very traditional and this is the 2014 vintage. Excellent. Okay, Nick, tell everybody where they can find you and your wealth of knowledge at RPM. Give us uh, the street address, and please tell us where we can find you online. Yes, uh, so we're located in Washington, D.C., 650 K Street Northwest. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can find me on Instagram, nick.trollman. Excellent. One last quick question, yes or no. Do you do classes? Uh, yes, uh, we are working on revamping our weekly wine classes uh, once again. All are invited. Excellent. And we will also always have that information on the list, areyouonit.com. I want to thank everybody for joining us today. It was a fun show. For Foodie and the Beast. So most of it was not in studio. David and I and Nick are here. Thank you, Nick. Uh, and Andy, he our producer. So good. Thank you, Andy. Uh, but everybody else is still calling in virtually just because we're all being very careful because of Omicron. I am going to make my weekly plea. Just remember, please, take your patience or kindness pills before you go out, whether you're eating outdoors or indoors um, or just picking up to go. Remember, there are staff shortages. It's here for a while, people. Just be kind. Everybody's working as hard as they can. If you're asked to wear a mask, please do so. And now, get vaccinated and boosted because you're not going to be allowed to go into restaurants unless you are. So we want to thank you and all of our guests for joining us today. It is Restaurant Week. Support your local restaurants. And everybody, please have a delicious week.